Welcome to Law in the Family, a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section, providing insights for lawyers about the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. The information shared during this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the podcast guests, and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Welcome to Law in the Family, where we discuss issues and topics related to the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. I'm Aaron Weems, a family law attorney in Fox Rothschild's Blue Bell Montgomery County office. Today, my guest is Ellen Friedman. You probably know Ellen from the numerous programs and presentations that she does for the Pennsylvania Bar Association. She serves as a law practice management coordinator for the PBA. She's also the founder and president of Friedman Consulting. Today, she's here to talk to us about surrogacy and succession planning in law firms. Ellen, thank you for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Aaron. I'm real happy to be here. Well, I think you have information on a pretty valuable topic that not enough of us think about. So why don't you take a couple minutes and tell us a little bit about what surrogacy and succession planning are and why it should be important for us to pay attention to. Absolutely. Let me start first with the succession planning, and that is very simply thinking about what is going to be your exit strategy at your firm. If you're a solo, what is going to happen when you're ready to scale back and retire? Are you planning on getting any sweat equity out? Are you looking to have someone continue on the practice and the service of your clients? Obviously, attorneys in two or larger attorney firms have a lot more options, but you still need to plan for the transition of your clients and depending on what your role is at your firm on the management of the firm. So that's your succession planning. And then surrogacy planning has to do with death, disability, and sudden impairment. So we need to plan according to currently our rule of professional conduct regarding competency. Comment five says attorneys probably should be preparing, making plans for those contingencies to make sure their clients are well taken care of. Right now, the rule for surrogacy planning, which is, you know, who's going to step in and take care of your clients, is a should. And in about five or six states, I lost track now, in the United States, it's a must. Pennsylvania is a should, which is most states. And we are going to be transitioning in all likelihood to a must situation. So surrogacy planning, finding that person who's going to step in and who has all the right authority and information is going to transfer from what you should be doing to what you must be doing as a practitioner. So that strikes me as being something that could look a lot of different ways to a lot of different people. Are there some generally accepted or best practices that people should be aware of when they start to develop that surrogacy plan? Absolutely. In fact, the solo and small firm section of PBA went ahead and with much diligence and input from ethics and so forth, we put together a surrogacy package and we call it the surrogacy toolkit 
that has absolutely everything that you need to get the job accomplished very well. And there is a article that just came out in Pennsylvania Lawyer that I think just hit the streets last week that deals with this topic at well in a great deal of detail. So those who want more following the podcast, I encourage them to take a look at the article in the Pennsylvania Lawyer as well. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what some of those best practices would be? Because I think depending upon the size of firm that you're in, it would have a huge impact, as you mentioned. So is this something I think it's easy for people that have colleagues within their firm that you find people that can cover? We sort of do that in an ad hoc basis, just you know, when vacations come up and things like that. But why don't you talk to a little bit about what we ought to be doing in terms of really making a formalized plan? Absolutely. So let me separate for a moment the solo practice from the rest of the world, and that includes up to the large firms such as your firm. Solos are the ones that will have, actually the rule will apply to everyone, but it's particularly important for solos because they don't have anyone in their firm to turn to, so they actually need to have a formal agreement with someone outside their firm to serve a surrogate. And for firms of all sizes, you need to make sure that the information somebody needs to step in on an emergency basis is readily available and documented. And so that means that best practices You've got to have a readily available client list with contact information. There has to be a list of who is the right person to contact, all the deadlines and all the time commitments, the to-dos, as we call them, as opposed to any kind of statutory deadline. They all need to be calendared and accessible to someone. They need to know where to find them. So we know, for example, at a firm like yours, it's all calendar-driven, computer-driven. It's easy for somebody to go in and find those things. In smaller firms or even some mid-sized firms, they might still be working with a physical calendar, an individual Outlook account that other people don't have access to. And I know there are still a lot of attorneys, believe it or not, who have those little pocket diaries And if they're hit by a bus, the diary goes with them, you know, because it's in their pocket. So it's important to make sure that all of those kinds of things, regardless of the size of the firm, is available. And of course, you want to make sure that if there are bank accounts that someone else has access, signature access in an emergency, that they have if you're not in a firm with a partnership or a shareholder agreement, that they have access and rights to get to things like the bank accounts and the vault of original documents and so forth and so on. So we're making sure that the information, remember that whoever's going to step in, whether it's an outside attorney with a surrogate agreement or whether it's a fellow partner in a busy firm, they've still got their practice and they're going to step in on an emergency basis to fill in the gaps. So you want to make sure that they don't have to waste a lot of time spinning their wheels. You also want to make sure in mid to large firms that 
your clients have an awareness of who your next in-line person is and as much exposure as they can have so that they have built the kind of relationship that if for some reason you are out of the picture 100%, they've got enough of a relationship there with the client to not just get them through the hump of whatever emergency is next, but to retain that relationship on behalf of the firm. That's, you know, you just don't want to lose 80% of somebody's clients because all of a sudden they're out of the picture. The phrase that really got my attention there because it wasn't, it was really what I was curious about in terms of the mechanics of doing these things is the surrogacy or the surrogate agreement with respect to outside counsel and outside law firm that might fill that role for you. Tell us about that. Like, what does it consist of? I mean, is compensation addressed within it? I'd love to know a little bit about what are the dynamics of having that relationship with another firm to to serve in that role? Well, the compensation only comes into play if you're permanently out of the loop, in which case the surrogate is going to take on whatever matters are appropriate but their role could also be just farming those matters out. You may not be able to find a surrogate who can do more than get your clients to the right experts in the legal areas and close down the business aspects of your practice. So depending on if they're facile in your area of practice or areas of practice, then there would be within the agreement so much will come back to the firm, usually by way of a, like a, almost a referral origination credit. And the rest, you know, if they're taking over representation, is, is going to go to the surrogate. Most of the time, the surrogate is not getting compensated for anything else that they're doing. It's just a, I'm going to do this for you if the worst happens and you're going to do this for me. The agreements are within the toolkit. There are a couple of agreements. There's language for operating agreements, language to put in your will, power of attorney, you know, and so forth and so on. So everything you need there. And then it forewarns you about places, for example, if you have a retirement plan, your surrogate may need to draw on that plan. If you're disabled, you may need that money for your care. And so they have their own signature and allowance forms. So there are certain things that you'll be reminded if you have them, you have to go outside of the agreement. Does that answer? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because I certainly am curious to hear about what can be done for smaller firms, medium firms. I mean, you're right, large firm, we have a department, there will be an allocation of the cases and things like that. But the quid pro quo that goes along with both of us helping each other out in a smaller firm situation where just because you step in for a hearing one day doesn't mean that you're going to start getting compensated, but there is sort of that mutual support pact between the two of you. And that's really what those surrogacy agreements sound like they really serve, is that it's just a way of everyone understanding what the mutual reliance is and you know what would happen in the worst case scenario or two. And making sure that all the legal threads are connected so that the surrogate can do what they need to do. And I should mention that there are a lot of solos that choose law firms as their surrogate, not just an individual attorney, although the agreement will start with talks with an individual, but the firm itself will you know, sign off on that surrogacy, in which case usually there's some 
credit that goes back to the estate if mm-hmm. the practitioner is deceased. You know, within the larger firms like yourself, you've got departments, but you've got to think about, well, what happens if the top guy? What if it's only a two or three man department and the other two are fairly junior and not really able to maintain the relationships, but to do the work in the background? So then internally, you have to have a mechanism where someone else can take on the responsibilities to direct the younger people in the department and maintain those client relationships. So even in a larger firm, it's not, you know, that still required some fact and some documentation for who's going to be doing what. And I guess it makes a lot of sense. You don't necessarily need to find someone that's going to be hands-on with the cases, but you certainly want to find someone you trust that could that you feel good knowing that they will get your clients to the appropriate people that can represent them. So you don't necessarily have to have like the magic bullet. This person will jump in and just take care of everything, but you know, they're going to get your clients to the right place. Correct. And what I'm finding increasingly is that solos go to the extent, and I recommend this, that they will actually by practice area list one or two attorneys because they know their surrogate only does maybe one of their practice areas. And so for all the other practice areas, they'll make a short list to provide to the surrogate, which they'll update. And that's the other thing, like on an annual basis, you review and update, you know, certain aspects of your plan. Just as an example, your plan, one of the top things is what's the password to get into the darn computer, right? And you may change that. So once a year, you look at that. And maybe one of those attorneys in a practice area has retired or, you know, joined big law. And now that's no longer an ideal, you know, referral place to send your clients who are more used to the one-on-one handholding. So it's not something that you create once, but, you know, once a year, you give it a few hours and you update it. Understood. Listen, I think that's terrific information. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the succession planning, because that I certainly think is something which all of us will be facing in some form or fashion in our careers. And I think one of the, you know one of the things that first jumps to mind is, is there a rule or is there guidance about succession planning within our rules for professional ethics? Not other than, you know, making sure that you've thought about what will happen to your clients if something happens to you, but you really owe it to your clients to look and firm leaders, by the way, I think one of the top requirements of all firm leaders is that they incorporate succession planning and thinking into the culture of the firm and into the normal business of the firm and make sure it's being happened that it's happening. There are too many attorneys still that are holding on to those client relationships and blocking the rest of the firm away from their clients because they're afraid. They lack the trust to open up their clients to even good cross-marketing opportunities within the firm because they're afraid they might lose a client or that the credit might shift from their column to another column if the compensation plan is heavily weighted towards origination and client control. So what happens is a lot of these people, even as they age and they know 
that they're becoming more and more vulnerable to unexpected interruptions of their practice, meaning disability, health issues, and so forth, or even, you know, retirement. They're not allowing others in because very frequently the biggest impediment to that, aside from lack of trust, which is built into the attorney DNA, that's really hard to overcome, but the compensation systems. So firms need to really look at when attorneys get to a certain age, you should always start to have a dialogue. I'm not suggesting a mandatory de-equitization or a mandatory retirement. I, I hate those practices, but I do think there should be a mandatory discussion. How many more years are you feeling? Blah, blah, blah. And start anticipating when it's time to start opening up those clients and bringing in the making sure the second person is introduced to have the comfort level to make sure that those clients have an easy transition and are retained by the firm. So that's not a one-year discussion. And when you start to say to attorneys, okay, you have now identified your five years, let's say, from retirement. So our goal is 20% of your clients each year need to be transitioned. You need to build that into compensation and make it not that they're whammied by the compensation plan and penalized for that, because that's activity that is for the health of the firm. So you need to be able to pivot your compensation system to make sure that you are rewarding the attorney for institutionalizing that client by passing them along and bringing someone else strongly into the relationship as the primary. And the other part that I find is that the lawyer himself or herself often feels that this is not going to be a welcome situation with my client. My client wants me. They don't want anybody but me. And I'm not going to upset the client unnecessarily and risk the client relationship. The reality is that most of the clients, the institutional clients, the business clients, they're worried when their lawyer is getting to a certain age, they are secretly holding their breath because they are worried and they don't want to insult the lawyer and they don't want to have the awkward conversation. They don't want to, you know, indicate they have any doubts in the capabilities and, you know, of the lawyer, but they're worried that the lawyer's institutional knowledge of that client could evaporate in a moment's notice. One step off the curb, you know, in front of the SEPTA bus, doing a header down the steps, a stroke, anything could in an instant completely change things. And, and clients are worried. They'll be very relieved if you open the conversation first and say, look, we let's be realistic. None of us lives forever. Let me talk to you about what planning I'm doing and what that means for you. And they will breathe, breathe a sigh of relief. You know, it's interesting. It strikes me that you're, you're talking about something, almost a topic in which we are very educated and experienced on telling our clients about mitigating risks and having to confront difficult questions, but then yet we're not really up for the task uh, when it's turned around and we're having to think about 
what the next step will be. And it sounds like a lot of you know, there's a lot of both ego and emotion involved in these conversations, because I can certainly understand an attorney not wanting to necessarily tip their hand when they think they're going to retire, because the client may say, well, if you're only going to be in this for another two or three years, I don't necessarily want to start a professional relationship with you. So I can see the concern on everybody's part about what's happening at, at this particular moment in your career. And let's face it, there's a lot of highly performing older attorneys who from a numerical age standpoint, might be thinking about retirement, but they're not ready for it. Like we're, we're all living longer and I can certainly see how, how someone in that age range would be concerned that they're not ready to hang it up yet and they're not ready to let other people know they're ready to hang it up yet. And so the dialogue isn't, I'm retiring or I'm thinking of retiring in five years. It's, I've gotten to an age where I recognize that things may happen suddenly over which I have no control. And so to protect you, I'm taking certain actions. And that is something that is very meaningful. You know, it's interesting also because from an ethical perspective, think about this. If you know that you're retiring in two years and you're about to take on a new prospective client and you know their matter is going to be transcending much beyond don't you have to forewarn them? Can you just take that on board knowing that you're not going to be there till the end because you've already made plans? I would think that's kind of misrepresentation. And I would think that if it ultimately prejudices the work that you're doing for the client, they could have a good malpractice claim against you. That's a great point because I think when you're, when we're, we're, we're on the family law blog. So we're talking about family law and I think a lot of us are hopeful that we can get cases wrapped up quickly and things like that, but we also know that that doesn't happen and that our cases can, can go on for a couple of years. So that's a great point from not just our practice, but other practices where the timelines are much longer. And I think what you're really speaking to is having to really do a good job of, of with your intake and understanding what the case calls for. But then the other side of that is just being upfront with the clients and I guess really putting it to them as to whether or not they're comfortable with the idea that you will take this as far as you can go, but it may not be necessarily to the end. And I guess if you're having that conversation, you're also incorporating, here's what I would do next. Exactly right. And and there are attorneys, they think, oh, nobody's going to allow me to represent them. But I've dealt with many through the hotline that are saying, I'm fairly sure I'm going to wrap it up in the next couple of years. But I don't know if in two years from now, if I feel as good as I feel right now, I'm going to push it back another couple. And I said, just be honest with the clients and tell them what your contingency plan is and let them make an educated decision. That's the you have to understand it's the client's choice. And so if you think you're, you know, within that window where you might not finish it, you should present it to the client and say, I may not. It depends if my, you know, health goes downhill, whatever. But here's what I plan on doing if I don't finish it. Here's the one or two attorneys that all my things are going to go to. I've worked with them consistently. I've sent them overflow matters. Here's the credentials. And you know what? They're unbelievably surprised that 99% of the clients, they come to them because they've heard of them, they want them, and they consummate the deal because they know they've got plan B. And they really respect the attorney for being honest about it. This has been great information. I know that we're really just hitting the tip of the iceberg on both the surrogacy and the succession planning. 
But while I have you for a few more minutes, we're talking about succession planning in the context of transitioning clients, almost like a natural transition. But, you know, that's not the only form of succession planning. Not only do we have sort of the retirement concept, but we also have someone deciding to sell their firm, someone deciding just to close the firm down. Anything that we should just sort of keep in mind in those aspects of transition, you know, whether it's timelines or best practices related to someone that might decide that they want to sell the firm and transition it, or they want to just close up shop and go do something else. Absolutely. You know, the timeline to sell your practice, you need to start about one to three years ahead. If you're really lucky, you know, you might consummate it, find a buyer and consummate it in a year. If you're not, it could take you three years to to find the right buyer and and negotiate all the terms and and then effectively transition, depending on what that looks like. If you're going to transfer the practice to somebody else where they're, you know, buying in, joining you, and then eventually, you know, they, they each year they get more of the firm. You probably need about five years to effectuate that kind of a Uh, transition. If you're trying to have a successor at the firm, you know, you need between five and 10 years. And at big firms, as you know, I mean, it takes quite a while. You bring in big classes sometimes of baby lawyers, but every year there's less and less and less of them. And there's a very small percentage that ultimately make it to partner and become the kind of person that can take over the reins, not just for client, but in smaller firms, managing the firm. That's a whole nother area of succession is the actual business management of the firm. And the smaller the firm, and that could be anywhere from 15 attorneys down, the more critical it is that they also be able to take over those business aspects as well. And that requires at least a three-year transition, in my opinion, to do it right. So I think one of the takeaways here is that you shouldn't be waiting on any of these things. Oh, no. It's so funny. You know, I get calls all the time on the PBA hotline from attorneys that say, Ellen, I just decided I'm going to retire in three months. And I burst out laughing because I said, well, you may close the office door and stop taking in new clients, but trust me, you're going to be open a lot longer because just to deal with the client files is going to take you a way lot longer than you think, let alone closing down the business aspects. That is something that occurred to me in all this is that we talk about this from the attorney's perspective, but there's also a staff aspect to this, both in terms of, you know, certainly there's the transition of what their next position will be, but also just what their role is in both these types of planning, both the succession and surrogacy. So so maybe as our closing thought here, why don't you talk a little bit about the best practices that we can have as attorneys to help put our staff in a position of success to make sure that they can handle these types of things? Absolutely. You know, the saddest thing is when I get the call from the secretary of 30 years, her boss killed over at the desk or at home, and they haven't a clue. They don't know where anything is. They don't know about the business parts of things other than write this check or, you know, deposit this check. And they're completely lost. They don't know what to do. The good news is that there's such a shortage of good qualified staff that if you bring them in on your plans, you should never say, oh, I'm closing my office two weeks from now and good luck. 
you know, that's nothing to do to a, a loyal long-term staff member. Make them part of your plan. Tell them, you know, believe me, I'll help you get another job when the time comes. I'll give you a bonus if you stay with me until I'm ready to close the doors. And the reality is with just a few phone calls and your endorsement, as long as they're willing to learn new procedures and policies and new firm, they'll get a job if they want it. But they can be very helpful in an emergency. They should be part of the planning, especially for a solo firm of knowing where things are. And, you know, you can pre-approve letters to get sent out so that your surrogate knows that you've already written letters and they can just kind of, you know, get them out the door. There's lots of roles for a staff member to be involved in both transitions, surrogacy emergencies, and so forth. Great. Well, listen, thank you so much for this. Are there any closing thoughts? And please, uh, why don't you provide that hotline number for us as well? Absolutely. Anybody that listens to this that's a PBA member, remember you get all the help from me that you want, and there's never a charge. And you can reach me on the back phone, which is 800-932-0311, extension 2228 or you can email me at law practice, one word, law practice at PABAR.org. Either will come directly to me. You can also find the surrogacy toolkit in the PBA, on the PBA website, in the solo and small firm section resources, as well as in the law practice management resources. Or you can just send me an email or drop me a phone number, leave your email, and I'll send it to you. All easy peasy. And if you want to talk in detail, get a hold of me and I'll walk you through it and hold your hand. Ellen, thank you so much for being here today. This has been tremendous information. And go look up Ellen. She's around. You'll see her at meetings. And she's certainly readily available by phone and email. So she's a fountain of knowledge. So go hit her up. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you, Aaron. This has been great. I appreciate your giving me an opportunity to get the word out. It's my pleasure. Bye-bye. Thank you to Ellen Friedman for joining me today to discuss surrogacy and succession planning for law firms. Her information is extremely important to know. If you check the show notes, you'll find not only the information about where you can contact Ellen, but also places that she'll be speaking and where you can get more information about this topic. Thank you for listening to the Pennsylvania Bar Association's Law and the Family. Again, I'm Aaron Weems. If you have something to share, a topic you want to hear about, or you'd like to keep this conversation going, please contact me by email at aweems at foxrothschild.com or find me on Twitter at Aaron Weems, A-T-T-Y. And thank you again, and we'll see you next time on Law and the Family. Law and the Family is a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section. To learn more or to join the section, visit the Pennsylvania Bar Association website at pabar.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And to catch up on every episode, join us at anchor.fm slash lawinthefamily. A reminder that nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the guests and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Thanks for listening and tune in for future podcasts.